those out of the way. We're finishing up a series, uh, a series on spiritual disciplines. So you will have known if you've been here for a few weeks, we've been talking about various things that were quite foundational. That's why we thought it would be good to have them at the beginning of the year. And so uh, we've spoken on things like uh, hospitality, on giving, on prayer, and today on Bible reading. And you will have noticed, if you uh, pay attention, so we didn't just say, you know, what the Bible says about giving, what the Bible says about hospitality, what the Bible says about prayer. But we've got people who are committed to those things to say, why I pray, why I give, why I read the Bible today is, is mine, and today is mine, uh, why I make a priority of Bible reading. Because the idea is that it may not be an exhaustive every reason for Bible reading or prayer or whatever, but it's what's important to me. Uh, from God's Word. So, to kind of understand that, you've got to probably understand a little of my story. And I grew up in a, a pseudo-Christian group. And so the Bible was ubiquitous. It was at church and it was at home. And I read it in the family Bible study. And when, when we went to a meeting like this, we would read verses from the Bible. But I must say that it was used more as a reference book than anything else. So at a meeting like this, we would open our Bibles and the, the person speaking would cite a verse and we'd read that verse and we'd read another verse from somewhere else. But I can't remember too many times when we read a section of Scripture. It was more a reference book. And I was um, joking with Anne-Marie the other day because when I first went to Anne-Marie's place, I was only 14, and, and in her house they had a wall unit just in front of the front door. So as people filed out to their, their version of church on Sunday morning, there were six in Anne-Marie's family and there were six Bibles and six songbooks. And the first person out the door grabbed the first Bible and the first songbook and they go off to the meeting. And then when they came back, whoever was first at the door, they went to the bottom of the stack. And as far as I know, it later undisturbed until the next time. Uh, and they had three meetings a week, so there were a few of those. But it was kind of funny because it was kind of like, well, there was no understanding of having a personal Bible. It's just like a textbook. And it was a bit like if you went to your you know, engineering class and you grab your engineering textbook on the way out and you use it for class and then you put it back. So that was what I grew up with. But I got to know the Bible stories and I'm in meetings like this and I got to know those proof texts. And so 50 years later, I can remember a number of those. But I can remember from going from being a textbook, I can remember how things radically changed in my life. I can remember the day that, that my boss took me out from work and he had a religious uh, a religious idea, philosophy as well. And so we went out for dinner. He basically assailed this um, edifice that I built of proof texts uh, in conversation. And actually the edifice stayed perfectly fine because he was in a pseudo-Christian group as well. But I didn't stay fine because after that evening I thought, yeah, what do I think about God? And it set me off on a search for who God is and how I would know him. Now one of the benefits of being in a one of those pseudo-Christian groups who meet three times a week and who consistently go over proof texts is that there's no, no need for Bible memorization. Because what happens is you're listening from when you're four years old or whatever, you hear the same things over and over and over again. So I remember one of the verses that I remember is from 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16, which says, All scripture is inspired of God and beneficial for teaching, for reproving, for setting things straight, for disciplining in righteousness, that the man of God may be fully competent, completely equipped for every good work. So, in, in my search for God, that's the place to which I went. 
But ironically, that verse, if you'd asked me, well, you, you know, you can quote that verse. If you'd asked me what the context was, I, I would have been able to tell you Paul wrote to Timothy, but why he wrote to Timothy, what were the circumstances, what were the verses before that, what are the chapters about, I would have no idea. But I do now. So I know that Paul was in prison and he had very little time left and he knew that. And so he wrote this letter to Timothy in the context of Timothy's work in the church. And when he's talking to Timothy, he's talking to him about his personal faith and the gift that God has given him. And he's talking about his role in the church. And you can imagine it's quite a short book, but he's basically compressing everything he knows and everything he wants Timothy to know. And so in the first part of uh, Timothy, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, knows what's going to happen. He says, this is what it will be like in the last days. And if you read through the first bit of uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, you'll have a perfect description of society as it is today. And sadly, a perfect description of what it is in in some sections of the church. Because Paul was writing to Timothy in a church context. And he says, deceivers are going to go forth and they're going to go and they're going to deceive people. And sadly, the people who are deceived want to be deceived because he says these people want their, want their ears tickled. They want to hear things that they want to hear. And so that is the context of this Second um, Timothy chapter 3. So open your Bibles with me to those verses that I've quoted and we'll read them. Second Timothy 3. Now that you know the context, evil men, apostles go from bad to worse, etc. Verse 14 of Second Timothy chapter 3. He says, for as for you, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you've known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. They're amazing, amazing words. This, this book, this Bible here, God breathed. God breathed. It's the only time that expression occurs in the Bible. God breathed. And when I thought instantly when I'm rereading that, I'm thinking the breath of God, my mind instantly goes back to creation. And there God creates this man, Adam, and he's at that point inanimate. A bit like if you've, as you get older, unfortunately you see people who have died, you get close to people who have died, and you might have seen someone, been in with someone who's died. And you look at them and you think, three hours ago they were alive, or five minutes ago they were alive, or two minutes ago they were alive, but there's no doubt what their situation is now because when you look into their eyes, there's nothing there. It's a really strange thing. And you can understand why people don't believe, find it difficult to believe in resurrection. Because you look and you think, how can life ever come back into this? And it tells us in Genesis chapter 2 that God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life. And you can just imagine as those cells begin to take in oxygen, they come alive, every atom and molecule in his body and the senses come alive and he can see see and feel and think. That's life. That's the breath of God. That's what the breath of God can do. That's the power of the breath of God. The other um, occasion that I thought of was um, that comes to mind is Jesus in the upper room 
and it says that with his disciples, it says he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, when you receive the Holy Spirit, you receive life, you receive dynamism, you receive the power of God. So when we think about God's word being this uh, scripture, the Bible here, being God-breathed, that's what it is. It's life. It's full of life. It's full of Holy Spirit life. So it's not like any other book on your shelf. Every other book is inanimate. This is a living book. So that's one of the reasons I go to it, because it's a living book, and I know that I'll receive something. Just think about the fact that the Holy Spirit delights in bringing glory to Jesus. He loves to fill us as a knowledge of God. And so when you've got the Holy Spirit inside you, and you've got the Holy Spirit God-breathed word, is nothing going to happen? There's going to be movement, there's going to be action, there's going to be, there's going to be life. I desired then and I desire now to know God. And he is so generous in giving us this book. I don't know how many pages it is, maybe 1,500 pages. But he reveals himself in that book. I know nothing at all about teaching. Jordan probably knows a bit more than me. <laughs> but I do know that they often say the best way to teach something is to go at it from as many angles as you can, as many different teaching media as you can. And isn't that the way that God deals with us in his word? When, when you're getting to know someone or getting to know God and to, getting to know who he is, sometimes he reveals himself absolutely. And he says, this is the God I am, compassionate. This is the God I am, a jealous God. I'm the God of love. Sometimes he self-reveals who he is. And we go, okay, that's God. He's holy or whatever. Other times he reveals himself through his interactions with people. So as you read through that first section of scripture, what we might call the Old Testament and the New Testament, in fact, there's lots of narrative and there's lots of occasions where God is interacting with human beings. And sometimes you see him and, and it'll be confounding. I mean, remember that um, situation where they're moving the Ark of the Covenant uh, from one place to another and it, the, the animal stumbles and the cart moves and the Ark's about to tip and somebody puts a hand, Uzzah puts his hand and steadies the ark and he's immediately killed. Well, that reveals something to us about God and sometimes it's confounding and confronting. We think, well, why did God do that? But you see, God reveals himself in his actions towards people. When he's talking to, um, to Abraham in relation to Sodom and Gomorrah, and there's this uh, instance where, where Abraham says, you won't kill, you know, kill everyone in the city just... You know, if there's 50 righteous people, will, will you? And God says, no. Well, what about if there's 45 and so on? And we, again, we get a sense of who God is, his righteousness and also his wrath. Well, what a gift that is, that God has given us through the pages of his word a, a revelation of who he is, and it's complete. I mean, if God had wanted to give us a three-page pamphlet that said, this is all you need to know, I guess he would have. But what he's given us is a large book that's that the Holy Spirit has inspired, that tells us so much about who he is. And if you desire a relationship with God as I do, uh, it's like when I desire a relationship, when I first met Anne-Marie, when you first meet someone you love, you want to know everything about them. You're not content with the superficial, you want to know how they feel about things, you want to know about their background, you want to know about their character, that's how it is with God and it brings us back time and time and time again. And, of course, what 
Paul says to Timothy there is that these scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation. This is where you find, through faith. So not by the scriptures alone, that was the problem that the Pharisees had. You, Jesus said you think you, you get life just through the scriptures, but they're designed to draw you to me. And so with uh, people that we meet, let's draw them to the scriptures, let's take them to the scriptures. That's the place where they'll find Christ. So teaching, it says, that God's, the word of God is God-breathed and beneficial for teaching. That's why I go back to the Bible, because the Bible teaches me stuff. Not just about his character, but also about instruction. There's a verse here in Romans 15 where Paul says this. Now think about this, because Paul is referencing stuff that happened in the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament. For whatever was written earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Now, we thought that what was written beforehand was written for history or was written to inform us. But actually, Paul says, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, because this word is God-breathed, it was written for our instruction. That means we need to read it to be instructed about the things that will happen. And you see, one of the things that we'll get from that is encouragement and hope. Because through the early writings of God's word, we can see the, the developing of God's plan. That though it all seemed to go awry in the first place, with Adam and Eve, and though it all seemed to go bad with Israel and the sort of things that were going on there, and though you might be in circumstances where there is persecution or illness or sickness or whatever, God has a plan that he's carrying through. And so we get encouragement and hope through reading the scriptures. That's the God-ordained way in which we get that hope. We don't get it through wishful thinking. Maybe God will work this out. But we get it through seeing how God has acted in history and through scripture. So we learn about Christ. One of the things, uh, and this is my experience and this is why I go back for teaching, is because that's the way that God taught me. So I come out of this pseudo-Christian uh, cult and anybody who comes to the Bible comes with certain ideas. I came with a caricature of Christ. I came with an idea of who God was. I came with an idea with what that plan was. But then exposing myself to the Holy Spirit, receiving the Holy Spirit and then receiving it through God's word means that he can instruct me. And so over time, I can't say there was any um, amazing moment where any particular truth was revealed to me. All I know is, and I've told this story before, so that you can close your ears if you've heard it before, but if you're a visitor, all I know is that after having read the Bible, being absorbed in God's Word, I then went back to one of these church meetings. And I've been going to those for 30 years. And I've been going to them for three times a week. And I'd heard this stuff and rehearsed this stuff thousands of times, literally thousands of times. And that last meeting I went to, the person spoke the same stuff and it sounded like blasphemy to me. And I had to leave. Now why was that? It was because I had been attuned to God's word. It's because the Holy Spirit had been working in me and through the word of God and I knew the truth of God's word and I knew the master's voice and I knew that those things were not right. That's why I go back to God's word because I'm not fully taught. I need to go back for more teaching from God's word as he reveals uh, who he is. The second thing it mentions, which is kind of corollary of that, but kind of the bad side, is this idea of reproof or rebuking, I think the NIV says. It's God breathes, useful for teaching and rebuking. Now, in my Amory is very generous with a reproof. 
She will give me plenty of those. So I, and probably some of you say, I don't think she's given you quite enough. Well, that's true. So we can all get that from other human beings at home. But scripture, the, that word that's translated reproof or rebuke is actually, it's only again used once in the New Testament, but it's used in other literature. It's a word for convict. The, the word of God will convict us. And so when you read God's word, because it's a living word, it will actually correct you in the things that you are doing. So it'll teach you on a positive side, but on the negative side, if you like, which is really positive side, God will be forming you. So the word of God can form you into, the, into a more, of a relate, a more of a resemblance to Christ. And um, so, uh, well, it's the verse here in um, 1 Corinthians where Paul says something... He says, again, re referring back to the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible, he says, these things happened, so these events happened as examples for them. These things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they indeed crave them. So again, there's this correction and conviction from God's word. Okay, I see that situation. God's revealing it. I'm reading the story about what Israel did or what King David did or what some other character did and I'm convicted by this because I'm in that same situation and I must learn to not do as they did. So when we're reading God's word and depending, because it's a living word, it'll be different for everyone. Nick's going to read this in a different way to, our, to the way I read it. And so when I'm reading God's word and suddenly I'm reading the stuff that I've read a hundred times... I'm reading it afresh again. And suddenly, this, maybe this word, um, uh, Christians need to act with gentleness. And, I, and suddenly I see it everywhere in the New Testament, gentleness, gentleness. And then I hear God saying to me, oh, oh, gentleness. It's nice, you can be gentle with children. And they're not, but, but what's it like when you're on the phone call and you've got a complaint to make? What's it like when you feel somebody's ripped you off? Paul, this is talking to me. Where, where's the gentleness? Is the gentleness evident in your character? And so you will find, as I find, that going back to God's word is the only place where I'm going to receive real correction because it's going to be conviction. And Miley can come to me and criticise me and I, and I can say, oh yeah, that's a valid point. Or I can say, that's Miley. She's always on about that kind of stuff. She's a bit sensitive. Or I can say about Lucinda, yeah, well, we know what Lucinda's like. She's got a different standard. But God's word is truth. Jesus says, your word is truth, sanctify me by truth. And that's why I love coming back to the Bible, because it's true. I read a lot of media, I read newspapers, and I listen to media, and it's all sifting. Oh, yeah, they're saying this, but why are they saying this? Is that actually the truth? Because someone's saying, but so refreshing, because I go to God's word, and I know that it's truth. It's absolute truth, and I can rely on it. And I can't make an excuse that, you know, God doesn't really know me the way I am. No, it's absolute truth, and I can trust it. I need it because I need correction and because I will go off base and I might be off base 5% this week. But if I'm not coming back to God's word, it might be 10% the week after and then 15% before I know I'm 90% direction to God's will and maybe 180 degrees and I'm heading in the wrong direction. And the Proverbs say that there seems a, man, a, a way to a man which seems right but the, the end of it is death. That's true, we, we're human beings. And so it talks about there... Uh, being set straight. I was talking to my brother a couple of weeks ago. My brother is a perfectionist. 
So you can see that DNA didn't, doesn't go to all members of the family. But my brother is a perfectionist and he's got plenty of money, so he says things that I would never say. He'll say to a contractor, uh, for any particular job, I'd like this done. Ferg would never say this. I don't care how much it costs, but I want it to look right. That's what he'll literally say. And so he was having a, a new ceiling put in his house. He lives on the eighth floor, or he did live on the eighth floor of his apartment, and the stuff had to be craned up. The windows had to be taken out. Plaster had to be cra uh, uh, you know, craned up, put inside. And my brother says the same thing. I want it to be okay. Don't care how much it costs. I want it to be perfect. Look, now, if I had been there, I would have smiled. But the contractor says, "That's fine. She'll be right. Mate. That's right. We do stuff by level. We use the level everywhere." So my brother says, "Fine." So I don't know how many weeks this was later. Say six weeks later, my brother walks in, and my brother, being a perfectionist, has a good eye. So he looked at the, so he looked at the ceiling, and then looked twice, which is a giveaway. The contractor looked at the same ceiling, smiling. And then my brother, so, so what do you get? You've got two different views. The contractor's saying, this is a fantastic job. My brother's saying, something looks wrong. So he picked up a piece of cornice that was on the ground, which is a straight edge, and he put it against the ceiling. There were a couple of little gaps. And so my brother said, not good enough. End result was it all had to be ripped out, recrained, redone, whatever. But the point is that you don't know that something's out of line until you put a straight edge against it. And that's what scripture is for us. We think we're doing fine. We come back to God's word and we need to read it regularly and then we go, yeah, well, there's something God's teaching me. There's something God is showing me in this place. When I was thinking through this whole concept of you know, having a straight edge and that kind of thing, I was thinking of the example of Ahaz. I don't, I don't know why this example stands out to me, but it, but it always does. Just Now, if you know the context of the Old Testament, so don't read the screen quite yet, just think, think what you know about the Old Testament, and you, can't, you read about the fact that God designed the tabernacle, this place where the Israelites would worship, himself. All the dimensions, everything had to be the right size, the right materials. He designed what the priests had to do, where every bit of furniture had to sit, the whole shebang. And then later on, Solomon builds a bigger version of that, God's approving of that. Well, then you have King Ahaz. Look what he does. It says, King Ahaz went to Damascus and he saw the altar, which was at Damascus, and King Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest the pattern of the altar and its model according to all its workmanship. So he goes off to a foreign country and goes, hey, that's a cool-looking altar compared to the one we got back in Jerusalem, incidentally God designed, that's far cooler. Let's get one of those made. So he makes one of those. And then it says, in that way Uriah the priest made it, the bronze altar which was before the Lord, he brought from the front of the house, from between the altar and the house of the Lord, and he put it on the north side. Then King Ahaz cut off the borders of the stands, removed the wash basin from them, took down the sea from the bronze auction, oxen, sorry, which was under it, and put it on the pavement of stone. And the covered way of the Sabbath, which they built in the house and the outer entry, he removed from the house because of the king of Syria. This is breathtaking. You think that example I gave you before of Uzzah, he touches the ark to, to steal it. He gets killed. Ahaz goes around totally reformatting how he thinks the temple should look. Unbelievable to anyone who's read the Bible like you and I. And so it strikes you when you hit it. But I wonder whether it struck Ahaz in the same way. Because I think 
And it gets worse than that. Stuff gets put in the temple. Gods, foreign gods get put in that temple. All sorts of terrible things go on in that sacred place. It's just mind-blowing. But you wonder, and then, you know, they're sacrificing their kids and, and everything else. A hundred years later, the book of the law is found. And you wonder what happened. You know, under the, under the arrangements back then, what was supposed to happen is when a king ascended the throne... He had to write a handwritten copy of the Law of Moses. So think about that, copying out the first five books of Moses by hand. What was God's design in that? God wanted them to know exactly how he felt about things, what his law was, and how they should conduct themselves. All sorts of blessings associated with that, but that was basically it. Well, I don't reckon Ahaz had his handwritten copy with him. And I don't reckon a lot of those kings ever referred to the Bible, because 100 years later... When Josiah, he's the king at the time, and the high priest comes from the temple and they've been cleaning up, as happens in many homes, and what I thought was really revealing, the, the high priest comes to uh, Josiah and he says, we have found a book. A book. He doesn't even say, we have found the book of the law. He says, we have found a book. So it was so foreign to them and had been gathering dust for so long um, but they didn't know what, what it was. But Josiah opens it, and if you, you know the story, but if you don't know the story, read it. Reading God's word changed things for that nation and changed things from Josiah, because you go, wow, all this stuff we were supposed to do. Well, that's the straight edge of God's word, and Josiah was now putting that straight edge against the way that things had been done maybe for hundreds of years in that nation. And now he's saying, let's get right with God. Well, that's what it's like for you and for me. That's why I go back to God's word for that straight edge. Philip Yancey has a little more contemporary kind of take on that. He says this, Several times a year I disengage from American culture, either on a trip to a foreign country or on a hiking trip into the wilderness. Each time, on return, that should be on return, I experience a jolt of re-entry, a psychic adjustment similar to what astronauts must go through physically upon return to Earth. I turn on the television sitcom and listen to the innuendos and sarcastic put-downs and the canned laughter that follows. I watch the commercials promising sexual conquests if I drink a certain beer and professional esteem if I rent from a certain car company. The first day back, modern culture betrays itself as a self-evident lie, a grotesque parody of the day-to-day -day life I know. The next day, my reactions moderate. A few days later, I'm breathing the air of lust, consumerism, selfishness and ambition, and it seems normal. That's our human condition. You don't have to go to a foreign country. You can do that by coming to God's word. That's why we come to God's word, to give us a straight edge against the world outside that will be changing regularly, changing in every direction, but we want to keep the straight edge of, of God's word. The other thing, the other reason I come to the Bible is because the will of God is revealed in it. Um, George Mueller said this, he said, I seek the will of the Spirit of God in or in connection with the Word of God. The Spirit and the Word must be combined. If I look to the Spirit alone without the Word, I lay myself open to great delusions also. If the Holy Spirit guides us at all, he will do it according to the Scriptures and never contrary to them. That's true, isn't it? This is God's written Word. This is the straight edge. God's will is revealed personally and communally for us in his word. So 
I found in my times of darkest need that by reading the Bible and asking God for direction, that the direction comes and it comes through God's word. It might come through a, a section of the Bible that I hadn't read before. And I can remember uh, um, times when I found that bit of scripture. I can remember that scripture in John 6 being very powerful about uh, eating his flesh and drinking his blood. I gained God's will. I didn't know in a human sense or even a spiritual sense. I'm asking God, I've got a million questions. God answers them directly through his word. That's why I keep going back. And finally, I guess the, f the, f the final one for me, and like, there are millions, so I've just jotted down some. I go back there for comfort because we receive comfort from God's word. He will form us through his word and he will give us encouragement and he will give us that uh, conviction and then often he gives us comfort in difficult, difficult times. So I remember uh, again when you're uh, in a pseudo-Christian group, Amory and I got to a certain stage where we left. Uh, it's your fault actually because we were attending this church we got excommunicated. So you all bear responsibility. But on that day, and it's a, bit like, it's a bit like when someone, again, when someone dies. When someone dies and they've got a terminal illness, you know they're going to die at a certain time. You might know it's weeks or months or whatever. When it actually happens, it's still a shock. Do you find that? You're expecting it, and yet the moment it happens, it's like, wow, really, is that it? And it's a bit the same with excommunication. Because excommunication means, in that context, that our family wouldn't speak to us anymore, brothers and sisters, nephews, nieces whatever, on both sides. It means that people that we've known for 20 years, uh, friends, would not speak to us. Not only would they not speak to us, but you, you have the occasion where you go somewhere, like into a supermarket, and you meet someone coming the other way in the aisle, and they'll put their eyes down, or they'll move out. Or if you're walking on one side of the street, they'll cross to the other side of the street. So that is, emotionally, that's pretty, that's pretty hard to take. So on the moment that happened and all those implications came through, I happened to be reading John chapter 1. And I say this because God's word is a living word. Anne-Marie was reading another section of scripture that day and she can tell you what God revealed to her, but it was something different than he revealed to me. So I'm reading through um, John chapter 1 and I'm feeling heavy of heart because of what's happened. And I'm reading about the word being... Um, in flesh and the light of the world and all that kind of stuff. And then down in verse 16, John says this. He says, he says, um, from the fullness of his grace, John says, we have all received one blessing after another. I've shared you this with, with you before, but... I share it from the point of view, that's why I go to the word for comfort. We have received one grace after another, one kindness after another. And so, because this is a living book, as I'm thinking through that verse, God is revealing to me and saying, well, what was John's experience? John's in his late 90s. How can he say he's received one kindness, one grace after another? What, what is the experience? He's seen Jesus crucified on a cross, with blood pouring out of him. He's been through emotion. He's standing next to Jesus' mother, who is like any mother, just out of her mind, with tears. 
He's seen his close companions martyred. He's lived through a time when Christians in Rome were nailed to crosses, set on fire, or they were clothed with animal skins, then put in the arena and killed by lions. He's experienced himself, he's been put on an island, uh, on a prison island, a rocky island in the middle of nowhere. And so when he's reviewing his life, he goes, well, we've just received one, one grace after another. That's because his mindset had been formed by his relationship with Christ and the Holy Spirit ministering to him. And he knew what the promises of God were and he knew that this life is just a limited life and there's eternity to come. And he knew and believed in the resurrection. He knew Jesus was coming back again and he would see him again. And those who had been martyred and all those faithful men, he knew he'd see them again. And so that began to comfort me as I thought, yeah, well, what, do I, what have I experienced in God? And by the time of the end of that little Bible reading, I was joyful so joyful about the things that I'd experienced through God that God had revealed to me, through my family, having my family, having Amory and the kids in that same situation. What a joy. Is it any wonder that I make Bible reading a priority? Because it's so glorious and it's, it, it, it is so beautiful. So let me encourage you, I guess there'll be no point in this if it's just an autobiographical story. This is why I go back to the Bible. I encourage you to read God's Word. And if you haven't ever read the New Testament, start there. Ask God, as George Mueller said, it, in connection with the Holy Spirit of God, he reveals and opens up his word to us. And he'll reveal it to you as an individual. And you'll see the goodness of God and you'll taste of the goodness of God. If you had to review those things, you'd say, well, come to it because it's God-breathed, because it's got power and dynamism. Come to it because there's teaching in there. Come to it because it will improve you and shape you as God wants to form you. Talk a lot about spiritual formation. It happens through the experience of the Holy Spirit working to, in you through his word, through his people. Come to it because it's a straight edge. You'll be challenged and you'll be, can be moulded into the shape of this world just by going to work every day, just by listening to the TV and the radio and the newspapers and just the, the zeitgeist of this world will, can change you. Come back to the straight edge to know what it is and come for the comfort that God promises and supplies. One of the great encouragements to me, and so I'd say, yeah, as I said, read the New Testament. If you haven't read the Old Testament, read the Old Testament. Pray before you do. Just say, God, reveal something to me in this word. Tell me something about you. Tell me something about myself. But I really want to know you. And he will, he will bless that request. If you're a young person, doesn't know where to start, start, start at... John. Read the book of John. Read the book of Acts. And then read Paul's smaller letters first. But get into the Bible and do it regularly. It's really a blessing. One of the things that I have observed, I've been in this church now 25 years, but I've observed what a difference it makes when people start reading the Bible. And you see the growth in people. And you see that they might have been a Christian for a little while. I remember Jacob there. was totally absorbed in God's word. And so... He had a, um, a discernment that you don't see in older Christians. It's quite amazing. Like, he didn't know anything. But I remember him saying he went to a, a Pentecostal church and they were speaking in tongues. And um, he said, shouldn't there be an interpreter here? Where did he get that from? He didn't know anything, but he'd just been reading the Bible. And that's what it says. The, the, the Bible will be your teacher. 
and it's glorious. And to see that, I see that in, in our church here. I often think of Michael coming to our church, and he's one of the people I know reads his Bible regularly, and I, he wouldn't have to tell me because I could see the growth after year after year after year as his discernment grows and his love for God grows. And you can see uh, you know, the, the exhibition of those things. It's just obvious. And I see it in, in other people here. It, it is a catalyst for real growth.